0: There's a ton of new faces tonight, a lot of family and a lot of friends that are here. If this is your first time, welcome. And we are so excited and we're so thankful that you're here tonight. As we begin, I want to share with you something about myself. I am prone sometimes just to do knuckle-headed things. <laughs> I heard somebody say amen. Is anybody else like that? You just sometimes can just do some really knuckle-headed stuff. We had a small group at our house uh, a few weeks ago and it was my opportunity to be able to lead our children in uh, the children's worship time before we did our adult Bible study. And during that time I was speaking from Exodus chapter 3 about the story of Moses and the burning bush. And as I was speaking about the, the burning bush, I thought, you know, I, I'm a guy that loves to use objects and stories as I teach, especially with children. And so I decided that I was going to use a lighter And talk about, like, this bush that, while it burned, it didn't get consumed by fire. You know, when you got a group of, like, 15 children under the age of five in a room, like, the best way to teach them is probably not with a lighter in the middle of the living room. You know what I'm saying? And so, like, after that time, my wife was like, let's not do the lighter object lessons anymore. Unless you want the children in our small group to go home and burn down their parents' houses. Probably not a good idea. But as I was reflecting on Exodus 3 and the story of Moses and the burning bush, there was something that God brought to my attention this week as I was reading again back through that text a few days ago. It has been so often that my mind has gotten consumed in that story with this bush that is on fire, yet it doesn't get consumed by fire. It doesn't burn up. Where sometimes I get caught into that picture and in that holy moment where Moses has taken off his shoes because he's on holy ground and I miss what God is saying to Moses in the midst of that story where there is great beauty and there is great power. You see, as Moses has been called by God to go into the land of Egypt and he is going to free the people of Israel, as God calls him to do that, there are some profound things that he says in chapter 3. Let me read this passage to you. Chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. You see, in the very initial calling of Moses, God is already promising him that when you go to the king of Egypt... When you go to Pharaoh, he is not going to listen to you as you request for the Israelites to be freed. And so by my mighty hand, I am going to bring about power and miracles through you that will compel the heart of Pharaoh to let my people go. Now, you could say right now, well, if God has the power to bring about these amazing miracles then why wouldn't God just go ahead and soften the heart of Pharaoh so the miracles wouldn't even be needed and the people could just be let go? If, if God is sovereign and He's all-powerful, He has the power to do that, right? Well, if you keep reading in that story, it gets beautiful. You see in Exodus chapter 4, as Moses arrives to Egypt, God tells him, the reason that Pharaoh is not going to respond to you is because I Will harden his heart to the point that by the tenth plague, I'm going to kill his son, and then he will let you go. You see, God had a marvelous plan that he was going to use Pharaoh as a part of that plan as he hardened his heart. God would use these plagues to express His power as He redeemed the people of Israel from the hand of bondage and slavery. That was God's will. It was His sovereign plan. Now, you could ask the question, what does that have to do with a night where we've gathered to talk about the Lord's death on this Good Friday service? I would believe that it has everything to do with this story. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to John chapter 19, verse 1. John chapter 19, verse 1. I'm going to read verses 1 to 12 in John chapter 19, and I want to encourage you to come along with me and and follow Then Pilate took Jesus and he flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and they put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out. Wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard the statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again, and he said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. And so as we catch up in this story we see that Pilate has already expressed that he has found Jesus guiltless. And so what he's done is he's tried to bring Barabbas and Jesus together in the hopes that when the people cry out which one they would free, they would free Jesus and allow Barabbas to take the punishment for the sins that he had committed. But that's not what the people want. They want to see Jesus crucified. So they take the scoundrel Barabbas instead and they say, crucify him. So then, Pilate still trying to think of a way that he can get around this so that he doesn't have to crucify a man that he believes is guiltless. Comes up with a plan. He decides that he's going to flog Jesus. that He's going to scourge him. So what he does is he allows his men to ruthlessly beat Jesus. And they take a crown of thorns and they put it on His head and then they take sticks and they beat Jesus over the head so that crown would go deeper into His head. And then they take turns punching Him and spitting on Him. And then finally, Pilate takes Jesus back and he brings Him before the people and he says, Behold your man in the hopes that when the people, the Jews, the officers, and the teachers of the law, when they see Jesus, their desire for Jesus' punishment would be satisfied. But it's not. And Pilate continues to, continues to maintain that he believes that Jesus is guiltless. But they say all the louder, crucify Him. Crucify Him. Crucify Him. Him. This next time when the Jews speak, they say, Not only has this Jesus said that he is King of the Jews, but he is also maintained that he is God's Son. So now they've gone from King of the Jews to their last hope in telling Pilate that he's claiming to be God's son. And because Jews have a law that anybody that would say that they are God would be put to death, that they would be stoned. And so Pilate hears this, and he hears that Jesus has yet broken another law. And he steps back, and the text tells us that he is afraid. Now, there's a lot of reasons why he could be afraid in this moment. One of those reasons is that Romans would often believe that humans could be deities. And so as he looks at Jesus, there's possibly part of him that says, maybe this man is a God, not the God, but a God. And then he remembers the message that his wife has sent him, not to have anything to do with this man because she's had a dream about him. And in that dream, she is very Disturbed. So he's afraid. And he sees this riot that is breaking out before him as the Jews become more and more angry and as they continue to shout out, Crucify him! Crucify him! So Pilate then step, steps back into his headquarters and he says to Jesus, Where are you from? Now the reason that Pilate most likely would have asked that question is because in the first century, much of your honor and your respect is tied up in the city in which you came from. And so he's trying to find out about this Jesus. Are you just from some peasant small town? Or are you from heaven? And Jesus doesn't respond. He doesn't say a word. And so then... In the next moment, Pilate says something profound and I want to encourage you to look back at this statement. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? And in this moment, we see the connection between Exodus chapter 3 and 4 and John chapter 19. You see, just like pharaoh Pilate believes that he has the power and the authority over his life and over the lives of others and so he looks at jesus and he says are you kidding me You're not going to respond? Do you not know who I am? Do you not know the role that I have to play today in your life or in your death? You're not going to respond to me? Pilate? Governor? Your life is in my hands. And then Jesus does respond. Check out what he says. Jesus says to him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. See Jesus in this beautiful moment takes Pilate and he says you are not in charge. While you believe that you're judging me (laughs) I am judging you. In this very Moment, And just like that, we see that Pilate does not believe in King Jesus. He believes in his own power, in his own authority. And again, God has hardened the heart of Pilate to be swayed by the people instead of being swayed by the Messiah who stands before him. To finish that thought in Acts chapter 4, 27 and 28. If you're struggling with this idea that Pilate had a heart that was hardened by God and Pharaoh had a heart that was hardened by God, I want you to read about Pilate here in Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28. As Luke writes, he talks about the believers who are praying for boldness in the church. And he says this about Pilate. For truly in this city there were gathered together against you, holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. From the beginning of the world's creation, God had had a plan. For this man, Pilate, that he would use him to crucify Jesus. It was planned, it was predestined. Now, as you sit here tonight, I think the big question for us becomes this Are you like Pharaoh and are you like Pilate? Have you entered in here tonight? Like Pilate, believing that Jesus is a good man. You've come here to see the cross, and you've come here to hear about his brutal death, and you believe that he was completely misunderstood, and you believe that he did some good things. You believe he's innocent, but at the same time, you have still entered in believing that you have the power and the authority over your life. Friends, instead of walking in here tonight, asking the question, in my power, in my authority, what am I going to do with Jesus tonight? Can we ask the question, in God's sovereignty, in God's glory, what does He want to do here tonight? He's God. We're not. Tonight, if you have come in here as a Christian, and your heart has been hard May God tonight, in His power, soften your heart and help you to see His glory expressed through Christ on the cross. And may He draw you in to remember and respond. And tonight, if you've come here and you're an unbeliever, can I say to you that it's because God has allowed your heart to be hardened. And may I pray right now before Mark comes up that God will soften your heart to the gospel. And believers, may you pray with me. Let's pray. Lord God, I ask that right now you would be God. I pray that you would help us to understand like Pharaoh and like Pilate, we so often live in this world as if we have the control, we have the power, God, help us to see tonight that you have the power and you soften hearts and you harden hearts and you do miracles so those that you have called can see your glory. Lord Jesus, I pray tonight that if there are those in the room, God, who have their hearts hardened, I pray, God, right now, that you will humble them, that you will soften their hearts and that they will see the glory expressed through Christ's work on the cross as He paid for sin and as He frees us from the bondage of slavery.
1: You come to certain moments in your life when it seems like everything just comes together. Uh, For me, this fateful conversation between Pilate and Jesus as I reflect on the meaning of this text, it's one of those moments that I picture literally like all of time waiting on this conversation. And if you're wrestling with sovereignty and God's plan for your life, here at Matthias we describe it this way, that God is working out His plan and He's working out His plan by His power alone. And by His power alone, He's bringing glory to Himself alone. God's will, by God's power, for God's glory. And in this moment, this fateful conversation between Pilate and Jesus, it's like all of the spotlights of time and history are gleaming down to portray and reveal an incredible message for you and I tonight. So this conversation goes on. Verse 13, check this out. So when Pilate heard these words he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in an Aramaic Gabatha. Now, just outside of Herod's palace, there was this raised piece of pavement or concrete or rock, if you will. And it was called in later parts of Romans chapter 14, it was called the Bema Seat, the judgment seat. Does anyone else find it ironic that here in the very moment of history when this weighted Messiah would go to a cross and die, we have a perceived human pilot sitting on the bema seat, on the judgment seat. The Romans chapter 14 says, is for God alone. And so the irony of all of this moment is all of these humans, pilot, chief priests, teachers of the law that are walking around in their authority, sitting in their own pride, thinking that somehow they hold the life of Christ in their hands. And in this moment, Jesus standing before all His people with a human sitting on the bema seat, the conversation continues. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover, which... um, in Jewish culture, this would be a Friday morning. Uh, it's believed that Thursday evening was uh, the night where the disciples celebrated the Lord's Supper. On Friday morning in Jewish culture was the day that the lambs would be sacrificed all throughout the land. And it's, it's that day now. It was about the sixth hour, which is a Jewish way of kind of summing up time somewhere around noon. And he said to the Jews, Pilate, behold your what? Behold your king. Now you remember earlier in chapter 19 of John, he said, Behold the what? You guys remember? Behold the man. And now in this moment, he says, Behold your king. It, it's almost as if he says this in jest. It's almost as if he's being somewhat sarcastic and somewhat meaningful, trying to figure out where the hearts are, uh, of the Jews are at. But he presents Jesus to them, all the people. And these are the people that biblically have been waiting on a Messiah. I mean, these are the people, everyone out here, the chief priests, the elders, the teachers of the law, these are the people that have been preaching over and over and over. We're waiting on a Messiah. We're waiting for the one to come. He's coming, we're waiting. And so Pilate says, here, behold your King. Now listen, before we read verse 15, This verse has completely confronted me. And I pray right now as we look at this verse in the context of this faithful conversation that God would speak. Verse 15. They cried out, which in the Greek is a loud shout. They cried out passionately. They cried out articulately. They were not holding back. Their voices were ringing together in unison. Away with Him. Away with Him. Crucify Him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your what? Shall I crucify your King? I mean, behold, this is your King. You're telling me that you want me to crucify your King their response the chief priest answered we have no king but caesar have you ever have you ever had a moment in your life where you just feel like who you are really just confronts you in the face When I was reading this passage about a week and a half ago as we were preparing for tonight, and I read that line over and over and over, we have no king but Caesar. Over and over and over, I was reminded of who I was. It's so easy in this moment to distance ourselves from the chief priests. You guys understand, the chief priests, these are the people that by profession, are teaching the people about who God is. So let's break down what they're saying here when they say, we have no king but Caesar. It's not just that they're negating the Messiah or who Christ would be. Are you with me? It's not just that they're negating Jesus. They are in this moment negating Yahweh. God. The one who they teach about every day in the temple courts the one who they represent the people when they give sacrifice to. They say, we have no king but Caesar. Do you understand that as the spotlights gleam down on this moment in all of mankind, it reveals the depravity, the wretchedness, the sin of you and I's heart. That is me without Christ. That's me looking at a beaten man, full of pride and envy, heart hardened, looking at him in the eye and saying, crucify him, crucify him, away with him. I have no king but Caesar. That is me. Is that you, folks? Would God just confront us right now in this moment of our sin? Of the pride that wells up in our souls that causes us to blaspheme the very idea of God by a sinful life. We have no king but Caesar. It's me. It's you. Without Christ, we look at a Messiah and the cross is simply foolishness. So can I ask you, all of a sudden, the very need of the cross is revealed, amen? The irony of this moment in time is that the very need that you and I have is revealed through chief priests. We have no king but Caesar. It reveals the heart of man that Christ would have to die for it would reveal the blackened soul that the blood atonement of a Passover lamb through the Savior Jesus Christ would have to atone for. In this moment, you and I's need of the cross is completely revealed. So that when Christ would die and blood spilts, and sin atoned for, now you and I could have relationship with God through His Son, Jesus. And now you and I have the opportunity to not say, I have no king but pornography. I have no king but money. I have no king but relationships. I have no king Except my envy and jealousy that rules my life. I have no king but gossip. I have no king except the material things that are in my life. You and I, through the cross, this Good Friday, have the opportunity through the power of Jesus to stand and say, we have no king but Jesus. No love of the world can control that out of God's sovereign hand. No lust of my eyes can diminish the power of the cross. Are you with me, church? No darkness of my soul can grab that away. The power of the cross is that you and I, church, can stand on this Good Friday and say why it's good. Because we can stand and say, we have no king but Jesus. No world, no lust, no depravity. That is the hope of the gospel, church. Are you with me? So look, tonight, this Good Friday, is about being confronted with who we are. Revealed in we have no king but Caesar. And then accepting full well the power of the cross that it could take our blackness, and by him and his ability and his approval give us relationship verse 16 so he delivered him over to them to be crucified there it is Jesus to the cross to become what Paul would later write the Passover lamb Friends, can I tell you something right now? There's an opportunity that we have as a church to celebrate what the gospel is. There's an opportunity that we have this Good Friday... To not leave after being confronted with our sin, with our head held down. There's an opportunity tonight, after being confronted with our sin, to walk out with more victory in the gospel than ever before. And can I tell you something tonight, church? It's time that we start celebrating something. It's time that we start celebrating the fact that right now, there's four people that are going to get baptized and say, you know what, we have no king but Jesus. Come on, are you fired up a little bit, church? Is that all you got? I said, come on now. This is the very power of the cross. That he could take the heart of a chief priest. The heart of a sinful, wretched man that blasphemes him to the face. And scripture says, while we were yet sinners, what? Christ died for us. So church, right now different than any other Good Friday gathering, we're going to celebrate the gospel and the reality of how it's changing lives. Come on.